Well, it is good to be here. It's good to see you here as well. Praise God for his provision and his protection of us during this week. Our scripture reading now is found in Hosea chapter 4. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers do have Bibles available. Raise your hand, they'll bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our service this morning. Hosea chapter 4. Let's all stand then in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Let no one contend, let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of, of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor get, go up to beth Aven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. And God give us understanding 
in his word today as we continue the series through Hosea may open our hearts to his word, his warning, his judgment, his promises to us. Let's take some time now to pray and bow in a word of prayer. After a word of prayer, our choir will come with a song and then the preaching of God's word through this passage, Hosea chapter 4. Come before you, Father, humbly, because we're not worthy to have a relationship with you. We're not worthy of the grace that provides that relationship. We're reminded in your word how sinful we are, how unfaithful we have been to you. And we would pray, Lord, that that will bring our hearts to a repentant spirit. We're also reminded in your word, Lord, of your judgment, your punishment, the consequences of sin, and we pray, Lord, that we would not ignore that, but that will provide an adequate caution and warning for us to know how holy you are and to know that there are always sure consequences to sin. We're reminded in your word, Lord, of your grace, of your love, of your mercy that we do not deserve nor understand, but that you have made available to us and you have pursued us in spite of our wickedness and sinfulness and you have covered us with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ if we would but trust in him, our sins are graciously forgiven and we have eternal life with you. We thank you for that. We want to come and worship you now, Lord. Though we are unworthy, knowing from your truth and your word, we are now made worthy, not by our deeds, but by the Lord Jesus Christ, his deed and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And now, Lord, we pray as we look in your word that you would allow us, open our eyes so that we can see how we should live in obedience to you in our lives today, here in this year, in this new year, this new month. As we go about our lives, show us, make it clear to us how we should walk in obedience to you. Open our eyes so that we might see guide our hearts so we might follow you and obey you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. Take a look at God's word in Hosea chapter 4. Hosea is a prophet and it's a strong, bold message. And I think also a very clear message that highlights the unfaithfulness of God's people 
and he speaks that message through the very life of the prophet Hosea. He tells Hosea that he is to take a wife that will become an unfaithful wife. And this wife is going to bear children. It starts off bearing the children. One from Hosea, it's kind of unclear who the father of the other children are. But as God instructs Hosea to name these children, it is clear that God is speaking a message to his people through the very life of the prophet. Now, I know we get hung up with questions like, why would God ask Hosea to do that? And is there a message to us today? Well, the answer to the first question is God speaks powerfully through the life of his prophet. And he continues to do that today, except his prophet is not Hosea. His prophet is the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his very life, he shows how, how holy he is that he must punish sin, how gracious and loving he is is that he provides the very punishment for sin in his own son and forgives all who trust in him and how persevering he is to go after his people like sheep, like a shepherd goes after wayward sheep and brings them into the fold. So it's a gracious picture of the glory of God as we see his judgment and we see his mercy all together in the Old Testament God. We see his love and his grace and also his promise, his tender speaking and promise to his people. In chapter 4, God here makes the case as if it's a legal proceeding, almost like a divorce proceeding, a legal proceeding as the just cause for his action. Why he must punish Israel. Now we know that that is a true and, a, and an awesome picture, but it's not the whole picture, and that's, that's not all that God does. But we need to understand, if we don't understand, if we don't take in God's holiness, as the choir just saying, God's holiness, then, and how he must punish sin, and he does deal with sin, if we don't come to grips with that, then we won't understand his forgiveness and his grace. Think about how that's misunderstood so often today. We so easily say, do you forgive me? Oh, that's okay. And what we mean to say is, no, it's not okay, but it is forgiven. And, and behind that truth of forgiveness is what it takes to pay for that forgiveness, the cost of that forgiveness. So we, we need to come to grips with the gravity the weightiness, the seriousness of sin before God. And so we see, first of all, in this chapter, the contention God has with his people Israel because of their sin. The contention of God. We see it in verse 1. He says, 
Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. A controversy. Later on, he'll talk about this, this same sense of a contention. He is bringing them into judgment, almost like bringing them into the court and says, here is the legal charge that I have against you. What is that charge? He goes into it in the second part of verse 1. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. No faithfulness. I think we make light of faithfulness today. As if it's not as critical or as important. It's almost like we say, well, since I can't do it, then we're going to say it's not important. And what we're really saying is since I don't want to do it, I don't want to be committed to all of that, I'm going to act like it's not a big deal. But he says there's no faithfulness. In other words, God expects from his people faithfulness. He is faithful. He expects his people Israel to be faithful. He is faithful. He expects the church. He expects believers today to serve him and to be faithful. <laughs> I kind of laugh. That's why it's hard for me on Wednesday to cancel service. <laughs> People know me. That's the first time in 25 years we've canceled service. <laughs> and I didn't feel like doing it then. Why? You know why? Let me tell you why. I, we, we, too much, we, we too much follow the trend that the world sets, you know. And, and, and so we see all these closings going on. But we need to, we need to understand. Schools close oftentimes because they, 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 they're going to have little children on a bus stop going to school and, and they, 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 they fear for their safety because they're, they're sitting there. But I would ask today, how many walked to church today? How many caught a bus today to church? How, how, how many actually do that? Now, we might have one or two. <laughs> but I doubt if any children are doing that. And so we, we, we don't have those same things. It, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I get up in the morning on a cold day, and I push a button to start my truck, and it starts in the driveway. And I wait about 10, 15 minutes till it gets plenty warm. I put on my little hat and, 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 and my gloves and my coat, and I walk out for 10 seconds from my door to my back door to, 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 the, to the truck, and I, I, I push a button, and it unlocks. I pull a lever, and I get in, and guess what? It's warm. And then I drive all the way to church. It's so hard driving through that cold and through that snow. I got to really use my foot and steer hard with my arms. And finally, after much toll, I pull in the church parking lot. And I park so far away from that front door that it takes me a full 20 seconds to walk out of my car, lock it with the push of a button, click, and then I struggle to get that key open. Now, most people don't have that because they're not the first one here, so they just had to pull it open. I struggle for maybe 20, 30 seconds sometimes, in extreme cases, to open that door. And then I pull that door open, and finally, 
I'm in warmth. That's the case for most of us. Now, I know some of us have little children, and I do have a sensitive side, so that's why we cancel service. <laughs> but the real side of me struggles, like, come on now. We, 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 we don't ride a horse all the way into church. We don't walk. Most of us don't even catch the bus. We don't ride a bike. Most of us, Jonathan with, notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> But even that, you know, I could talk about how when I was a kid, right, I walked 20 miles uphill both ways to school, <laughs> carrying my brother. <laughs> Those stories, stories kind of embellish themselves. But, you know, when we talk about being faithful, we can't really pat ourselves on the back that much. It's just not that hard. Even in the snow, I have to do this to get my snow blower going. Then I got to push it because it's, it's got a gear drive on it. I don't really have to push it that much. I got to guide it through those inches of snow. And then poor me, I actually have to use a shovel to shovel the steps. I have to admit, I've, I've uh, been 20 years in the house that I'm at, and I've only had a snowblower two years. So I don't really feel sorry for people who have to shovel by hand because I've been doing it for almost 20 years. On a corner lot with a driveway, too. But in terms of faithfulness, we, we, we need to put things in perspective that we don't have the hardships oftentimes. Now, we have other types of difficulties, and I recognize that. But let's not, what they say, break our arms patting ourselves on the back about how hard it is to be faithful. God says to Israel, there's no faithfulness. We, we notice what we call these the sins of omission, things that they should have done that they didn't do. They weren't faithful. He says there's no love, there's no steadfast love. Then he says, there's no knowledge of God in the land. He didn't mean in a sense that people knew nothing. To know God is to have relationship with God where we honor him in that relationship. And that they had fallen away from as a people, as a group. Then he mentions in the very next verse the sins, what we call the sins of commission, sins that they do. They're swearing. There's lying. So these are, are sins with the mouth. Jesus says the problem with the mouth is it, it just simply pours out from the heart. So something's wrong with the heart that this goes out. He says murder, stealing, and committing adultery. It, so, it shows that how they were treating not only God, but how they had treated each other. We look at that first sense, those things of omission say that when we do not honor God as we should, the natural fallout of that is that we're going to have difficulty in relationships with each other. 
If the vertical relationship between man and God, between us and God, isn't as it should be, we can rest assured that there's going to be some horizontal problems in our relationships. There's going to be problems in our horizontal relationships. And so, you know, as a pastor, as a counsel, I, I, I look at that and, and, and people, you know, say, hey, you're always trying to look and call everything spiritual. Well, it is. You got a problem with your husband. You got a problem with your wife. You got a problem with your brother, with your sister. There is a sin problem there. And that's not to say that it's all yours. There's plenty of sin to go around. <laughs> we can accurately look and see where that issue is, but it is a sin problem. So he says these sins that you do in disrespecting one another, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery, they break all bounds. I thought about that. One of the things that that as I, as I counsel people, one of the things that, that is an issue is what I would call undefined relationships. I ask a person, well, you know, are you married? No. Are you, uh, do, you have, do you have a relationship? Well, not really. What do you mean, not really? Let me, let me look at your cell phone. Uh, let, let me look at your Facebook. Let, let, let me see who you've been talking to all this time. Who is that that you're not having a relationship? You have a relationship, you just don't define it. You like to leave it blurry and gray. So we have problems with this. Well, who is she? She ain't my wife. She, she, she's my lady. She's that woman. She's you know, Miss Thang. She, whatever she is, we, we kind of define that in these terms that are, are very cloudy. And, and I like to dig into those terms a little bit. Say, well, no, I want you to define who that person is. Or oh, she's just a friend. You got trouble. You got trouble. And one of the first things I did when I met Donna, as we got to know each other, First of all, I wanted to make sure our relationship was what I call exclusive. I'm the only one. And she's the only one. He said, well, y'all ain't married yet. What's the big deal with that? God says to Israel, in fact, he named one of Hosea's children, not my people. Then another part he renamed, he says, when I make this promise to Israel, they're going to say to me, you are my God. I'm going to say to them, you are my people, and they're going to say to me, you are my God. He's saying exclusive, defined relationship. I know who he is. He knows who I am. So what happens with these undefined relationships, it says here that they break all bounds. They don't want to put a fence there. And if they were to put a fence there, they want to climb all over. Now, I could say something about our country and our natural defense and our wall and our president and so forth, but I'm going to leave that alone for now. <laughs> But the, the fact is, is we don't want 
these fences and boundaries and def definitions because we tend to climb all over them. We don't want contracts and terms because we tend to go all over them. We don't want marriages that are clearly defined because we tend to violate them. And that's what he was saying to Israel. Violence, he says, bloodshed follows bloodshed. I wonder if he was, you know, looking at the news from Milwaukee. Sometimes I make myself feel a little better. I listen to news in Chicago. <laughs> and I feel safer walking the streets here, you know. Because <laughs> they say over the weekend, X amount of people were, were, uh, were murdered, were shot, and all of this. And then I call my son, and he makes me feel like, oh, you, you can't feel all that safe. <laughs> Gives me the count of what's going on here in Milwaukee. But he's saying this is indicative. When people turn from the Lord, their whole society begins to break down. And this is what happened. When a relationship with God is not right, the fallout is, is that man-to-man, person-to-person begins to break down in every conceivable way. That's what he's seeing in Israel. Then an odd consequence in verse 3, he says, the land mourns. Also, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, even the fish of the sea are taken away. He says, as a consequence of sin, everything begins to be impacted. We see in God's creation the impact of sin in so many ways. What he's saying, this is the fallout of wickedness and sin amongst us. Then he breaks it down. Who does he put the blame on first? Verse 4, yet let no one contend, let none accuse. He said, stop pointing fingers and blaming this and that. Let me tell you what, where I'm going to place the blame. With you is my contention, O priest. The cause of Israel's condition is the lack of godly leadership. So he starts at the top, and he says that there's been a breakdown of those who need to be priests. Now, before we take ourselves off the hook there, you need to understand, one of the things that's hard to understand when you go through something in Isaiah, you wonder, at what point is he talking about Hosea and Gomer? And at what point is he talking about Israel as a whole? At what point is he talking about specific priests? And at what point is he talking about the nation as a whole? Because both are priests. A priest is, 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 is those God appoints to represent him to the people so that he's, 
he, 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 can, he ministers, he, he offers forgiveness of sin uh, through that priest, a payment for their sin, and that priest represents the people to receive that payment for that sin. To go between. He says that the history of Israel is that God intends for them as a people group to be priests. To, to be those who can take and extend and connect God's forgiveness to the people who need it. That's what the priest wants to do to connect God and people. And he expects Israel as a nation to do that. And they have failed miserably. As the people of God today, we have a responsibility to take the gospel and to make a connection between sinner and God through that gospel. God gives us that commission. He gives us that responsibility to go into all the world and preach or to teach or to share, to spread the gospel. He has not given that to angels. He has not given that to his natural creation, to animals, to plant life. You know, God made a donkey speak, but he hasn't given them the responsibility to preach the gospel, has he? He's given that to us, to those who have relationship with God. He, he's made us the go-between so that we might bring people, reunite them back to God, to reconcile them. Now, it's not our power that do, does that, but we are the agents appointed by God to do that. Israel was the agent appointed by God to do that before the whole world, and they have utterly failed and God holds the responsibility on them and with them. Have you ever thought that perhaps your neighborhood is getting worse because opportunities that God has given you to be a testimony you have not taken advantage of? If you want to see that, ask God to open your eyes to see those opportunities and give you the power to take advantage of that. Israel had failed utterly in that category, and God tells us how they had failed. He says, <clears throat> to show the responsibility, he says, you shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And so he links in here not just the priests, but prophets. Those who were false prophets bear responsibility as well because they had, had failed to take God's word out to people, to share thus saith the Lord with God's people. Notice how this message is getting out. It's through the prophet Hosea who's speaking to the people. We've looked at diff different examples in, 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 in uh, first and second kings of how prophets were called by God and oftentimes they faced false prophets. Elijah was one who faced 450 false prophets of Baal and, and, and uh, it, it took a, a, a lot of uh, uh, boldness on his part to, 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 to speak thus saith the Lord before that group but God had given him that responsibility to do that. And so prophet as well as priest is mentioned here as those who have failed in the position of leadership to lead God's people as they should.
you shall stumble, verse 5, by day. Of the prophets shall also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mothers. Kind of a, uh, an odd uh, um, thing. You know, we, when we look at a, prophet, a prophecy, we, kinda, we, we often get caught up in, in various words and, and trying to affix a certain meaning. I think with the, the term of mother is he's used this term before when he spoke of Hosea's wife, Gomer, as being mother, his children as, 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 as representing something too. And clearly Gomer as a mother and as a wife represented unfaithful Israel. In fact, the children represented them too. You are not my people, he said to, 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 to that child. And he, uh, later on it says, now I will bring you back where you will be my children. You will be my people. And so both uh, Hosea represented God, Gomer represented Israel, unfaithful Israel, and the children represented Israel as well. And I think mother here is a picture of Israel, the name for Israel. He's saying, I'm going to judge you. I will destroy your mother. My people, verse 6, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It was a priest's responsibility to share. It was a prophet's responsibility to share. Thus saith the Lord. It was a priest's responsibility to, 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 to offer sacrifices and to inform the people what this meant and how they were to rightly relate to God, to a holy God. And they had failed to do that. Instead, they had done something else. He says, I reject you. Verse 6, from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. He's saying Israel as a whole, the prophet, the priest, yes, individually are responsible, but Israel as a whole, I've rejected now from being my priest. You no longer represent me as you should. And because of that, I'll bring judgment on you, not only you, but also generations to come, your children. Speaking of these children, verse 7, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me. Isn't that something? We see that happening today. People think that because they have abundance, it's a sign of God's blessing. And so the more they get, the more they think that God's okay with me. I mean, I look at my job. Look at my bank account. Look at my business, how well that's going. Look at things, my health, things are going well. God must be okay. They don't always say that directly, but in their thinking, that's the system that they're operating under. That's why they so often think that, hey, <clears throat> even as believers, when I get sick, oh, God must not be pleased with me. Not necessarily the case. God is just putting some challenges in your life that you might trust in him, that it will point you back to him. Just as when you are so-called blessed doesn't mean that everything is perfect and you have done all things well necessarily. But he brings out this principle. <clears throat> I will change their glory into shame. I'm going to give them something to think about he showed the sin of the leadership there. Verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. We see plenty of examples of this in the Old Testament. I didn't take time to, to bring them out, but you can see uh, in, in the prophet Samuel's time, um, 
He dealt with the sons of Eli and, and uh, how wicked they were. And they were priests who, who took advantage of the people when they, when they should have been serving the people. They feed on the sin of my people, he says. They are greedy for their iniquity. Verse 9, it shall be like people, like priests. It's interesting. <laughs> Oftentimes with, with wicked leadership, they give in to the demands and the requests of the people. It should be that the people are following good leadership. But what often happens is the leadership, instead of leading, gives in to the demands and, uh, of the people instead of rightly leading them like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. Just like the, uh, um, um, Eli's sons is that he, uh, his, his, his sons were taking the sacrifices and they were, they were getting fat off them. They were eating and taking for their own gain things that people were offering as sacrifices and, and kind of are examples. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They're going to get stuff, but they still won't get satisfied from that. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine. I think that's very close to, to our culture today as well. We see some of the same kinds of, of wickednesses happening today. It says, Israel had forsaken the Lord to cherish something else. When we turn away from the Lord... We are pulled or drawn away to something else. We will love and serve one thing or another. Either we are rightly loving and serving God and fully committed to him, or we're cherishing and loving something else less than God, a substitute of God, and we're devoted to that. Now that thing can be very deceptive and deceiving in our lives. We can be devoted to our own career path and devoted to our own lives and our own, uh, we can be devoted to our own gifts and abilities and follow that and let nothing else get in the way of that. We cherish that. But God makes a point that Israel had left their pursuit of God and gone after something else else what do you want most in life what do you pursue the hardest in life what are you most devoted to what do you wake up early in the morning and stay up late at night to do where do you spend your hours and your thought what do you worry most about what do you cherish in your life what do you spend most of your money on what do you spend most of your time what is your thought life all about these are the things that we cherish. Now, God says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart. See, we love him with all our heart. Then everything else is second, third, fourth, and fifth place. Now, as I say that, we must repent because we reveal to ourselves that we are not always where we should be. But we also should admit that that's where we should be. God 
deserves, he demands and deserves our utter faithfulness and commitment. It's not too much for him to ask that. What happens when we begin to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine? At the end of verse 10 or verse 11, it says, which take away the understanding. A couple of phrases in this chapter that deal with understanding. He says in verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's not just information. We live in an information age. Information is abundant. If, if I don't understand, if I have a question, all I've got to do, hey, Google, right? I can find out almost anything I want to find out. Most of it's just worthless or very, of very little value information that I can find out. It's interesting. I watch TV or watch commercials and I see somebody on there that I don't know who, who that, that looks like somebody and I don't know who it is. Hey, Google, who's on that AT&T commercial with blah, 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 blah? And Google will come back and tell me. I am filled with trivia and information that may not be of very much use to me. I, and I can say that with Israel. They had a lot of information. There was no shortage of priests. The problem was they weren't in this knowledge and information bringing people into right relationship with God. That's what the word knowledge means when it speaks in, 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 in the Bible. To know God doesn't mean to just know facts about him. It doesn't even mean that you read your Bible from cover to cover. It means you, have, you are rightly related and relating to God. So he says, these things take away the understanding. They draw you away. When you begin to cherish something else, He's, in this case, he says it's wine and new wine. It will draw you away from a right relationship with God. It's interesting how that happens. I was watching yesterday, I was watching a show that talked about um, an airport in South America and how they deal with smuggling and, and drugs coming in. <clears throat> and how the security uh, examines and x-ray different people's baggage and, and, and find uh, drugs that have been hidden in secret compartments and all this stuff. And, and uh, so the drug dealers use people, average everyday people. So as they walk through the airport, they look just like me and you. And, and, you know, and so what happens is they, the, the security has ways of, of breaking it down. And when they see something that doesn't quite look right, they, 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 they take them out and interrogate, and they, they, they look through, and they have x-ray machines, they have dogs, and, and when something doesn't match up. They had a woman there who had this baggage, and, and in her baggage, she had like five new purses, and she was traveling from one country going out to another, and these new purses with the tags, I'm just like, well, that looks like kind of anybody could do that, right? I think several people that might <laughs> have that in their bags. There's nothing wrong with that, but something just kind of didn't quite look right. And so as the security got her baggage, they, they saw that the lining in the baggage was a little thicker than normal. Just a little bit. 
just a little bit thicker than normal. So they began to cut out and dig and pull out the lining, and they found in each one of those bags it was stuffed with drugs. You wouldn't have noticed it. You wouldn't have seen it. It wasn't detected. And right away, she began to like, I don't know where that came from. I can't imagine. I didn't believe her. Security didn't believe her. She had enough drugs to put her away from, from, for 8 to 12 years. What had happened probably is the drug dealers, the drug cartel, the business end of it says, hey, we will pay you a little bit money to take this and pass it through. And when you get to the other side, somebody's going to take that baggage. Don't worry about nothing. We got it concealed and you'll never get caught. <laughs> Funny, when security got to her, they said, now you got a phone call we make. We advise you, don't call the people who gave you this luggage. Don't call them, because they ain't going to care. Call your mother. Call your family. Call somebody who's going to come and visit you. And then these people would boo-hoo and cry, and then they would finally admit, yeah, somebody paid them to take this luggage and told them it wouldn't be a problem, and they, they needed the extra money, and so they did it. Here's an example of how... When we give in to sin, it looks good. It looks glamorous to us. Looks like, hey, easy money. All I got to do is go on a flight that I've already scheduled for, and all I got to do is, is use the baggage that they gave me and put my own stuff in it, and maybe a little extra, and I won't get caught. No problem. But sin captivates us, and then it leads us astray. It always does that. We just think we can get over on it. So he says, this wine, this whoredom, they cherish a whoredom, a wine and a new wine, which take away the understanding. Then he kind of lays out the pitiful condition in verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. Now, where were they to inquire? They were to ask of God. Where were the oracles to come from? Oracles is, is simply a verbal of uh, 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 speaking out of what God has to say. He will give his prophets words to say. He said they were asking it of their walking staff, of their canes. To give them oracles. And he, 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 he is being a little sarcastic, but he's being absolutely true. They would take a piece of wood and make an idol of it and cry out to it and look to it for guidance. Now, we today say that's foolish and we don't do anything like it. And yet, all too often today, we turn away from the word of God and we turn to other methods of guiding us and discerning us that are not from God. Turned away from God's way. I heard on a, a radio just this past week, a voice came on and it says, Hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. I'm a pediatrician. And she began to share with people how they ought to um, 
proper ways for encouraging the children to do certain things and to give them treats for certain things or rewards for certain things and, and uh, even to, uh, uh, you know, take away things that they may uh, want to, to encourage certain behavior. Then at the end of all of that, first of all, I was wondering, why is a pediatrician telling me this? Think about it. Just tell me if my child is sick or not. Have a fever? Have a cold? Give an x-ray? She fell and broke, her, broke her, her finger? Tell me that. Don't tell me how to raise my children. Because you don't know. You don't know. But a pediatrician was going through this. And then at the end of this, she said, by all means, by all means, do not spank your child because that doesn't work. I said, oh, okay. Word of the wise from a pediatrician. Really? That first of all goes against the very principle of the word of God. But since you're a pediatrician, you know better and I should listen to you. And what we do is we say, I'm going to bow down at the altar of the professional and the degree and follow their opinion instead of following God and his word. I can't possibly do that because they said that's wrong. Or child protective services might even come to my house if I do that. What we're saying is, I'm going to listen to a piece of wood instead of obeying God. I want to hear from my walking cane instead of opening the word of God and have God's people pour into me, thus saith the Lord. So we today are doing some of those same things and where we get our guidance from. We go to counselors and they say, I got something wrong. Something ain't quite right. What would you, advice would you give to me? And we walk out of there with a prescription. Instead of going to the word of God and the people of God and saying, Lord, here's behavior. How do you want me to deal with this? God, I don't understand, I don't know, but I need to know I'm going to you to find out instead of to the world's system, to that piece of wood and that walking staff. We do that today. We just call it something else and feel good about it. He says in verse 12, a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They have left their God to play the whore. I said, one of the difficulties is they use strong language, and so we're wondering, what, what does this mean? At what point is he talking about spiritual adultery and, and, and spiritual unfaithfulness to God? And at what point is he talking about the physical act of adultery and, and, and unfaithfulness to one's mate? 
He says in verse 14, uh, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding, here's that word understanding again, shall come to ruin. And we say, well, at what point is, is he talking about this, this physical versus the spiritual? I, I will say that he, he, he's making it pretty clear that a physical uh, adultery has followed as well. In fact, I think the message here is that it started with a spiritual adultery. In other words, spiritual unfaithfulness to God is what leads to the other. It is the root cause. My people have strayed away from me, therefore they will begin to show that in their very lives. Their relationship with me is not right, therefore you, you can expect to see the result of that in other relationships. Now it doesn't always show itself in the same way I see that, I know that. We say, well, you're a pastor. I know some people who are not saved who've been married for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, and they've been faithful. Good. That's good to see. I'm glad they're not going to experience the devastation that unfaithfulness will cause them. But the fact is, unfaithfulness to God will eventually show itself in various ways. Maybe not every to every person in the same exact way. But here he gives an illustration that in Israel, their spiritual unfaithfulness has exhibited itself in a wanton, just an excessive sexual, physical sinfulness. And I dare you to say that's not happening in our culture today. He said that what Israel had done is that they had gone to the practices of the people around them. And that's why he says this in in verse 14. The men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. As a practice of worship, as an act of worship, they were going into these temples, into these shrines, and they were involved in sexual activity as an act of worship. You say, wow, that's really wicked. And it is. What's happening is it started out with a straying away from the Lord. We often say, well, I'll never go that far. But I will caution and warn you, don't stray away from the Lord because you don't know how far you're going to go. As you begin to stray away from the Lord, you begin to lack knowledge and understanding. That's the nice way of putting it. Theology, we call it the noetic effect of sin. What it means is you get dumber as you sin more. You get stupider as you sin more. You get more foolish as you sin more. We can see that. A person starts off with small shoplifting. Just a thing of toothpaste. Costs less than $2. I can easily slip it in my bag. No big deal. But when they get that, they go, wow. I could have got two, one for my sister, too. So the next time, it's two instead of one, but it's no big deal. It's only toothpaste. But that attitude gets them into this mode of, man, why should I pay for something I could get for free? And they get caught up in it. And it doesn't happen overnight, but eventually 
it's like they don't want to dig in their pocket for some cash that they don't work hard to get. And there's an easier way to do all this stuff, man. Go the easy route. And pretty soon they're doing it, and it's getting so bold and getting so good to them, they can't stop. Why would they stop? They have no reason to stop. Eventually, they get caught. They've gone down that road. And it gets worse and worse. He says in verse 13, they sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills. Now, it's interesting. He says sacrifice and offering. So what's happening here? We, we think when we talk about Israel totally going from the Lord, we think of an unholy people who, who are wicked and have nothing to do with religion. But that's not the picture. What we have is an unholy people who are wicked who have everything to do with religion. Their acts are worship. Their acts are worship. Verse 13, they sacrifice on the tops of mountains. They burn offerings on the hills. They are involved in worship because that gets them what they want. There's an allure to this is the way to go. By the way, anything that you're totally devoted for totally devoted to, whether you do it in a church or not, becomes an act of worship. We're made that way. So either you're going to worship God wholeheartedly or you're going to go off into some other kind of worship, and that's what they were doing. God kind of gives them up to their own wickedness in verse 14. We already looked at that. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. He said, I'm going to let them do it. I'm going to let them be what they determined to be and bring the judgment upon themselves. Then he gives a warning in verse 15. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. You know, we talked about a divided kingdom, and the northern kingdom is Israel. And God is speaking to that northern kingdom, and as he's going to bring judgment on them, he's warning the southern kingdom. Watch out. I, I remember so well when I was a kid. My, my brother would do something wrong, he'd get a whooping. And I could hear the belt hitting his behind. And that'd be a warning to me, boy. Don't go that route. Because it ain't going to feel too good. God is spanking Israel, about to spank them. And he's saying, look, Judah, watch out. Because you're headed in the same direction. God is warning. He says, why should you get spanked for something that you see your brother doing already and you ought to know better? I always thought it was a much easier lesson to learn from somebody else's experience and to have to learn from my own. One of the reasons God wrote his word, the things in the Old Testament, the things in the New Testament, written for our admonition. They were written for our instruction so that we could stay away from sin and, and God's inevitable judgment. So he warns Judah. Don't go that route. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, 
Beth Avon is kind of a play on words. Beth, Bethel means house of God. Beth Avon means house of evil. They have left the house of God and went on to the house of evil. And he says, don't go that route. Don't go that route. Finish the rest of this chapter at another time, but God's word is a caution to us today. Here we see a clear picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel. We see a clear picture of the judgment that God brings on that. And we've already seen in this short prophetic book not only God's judgment but we've seen God's mercy how he says even though Israel has been unfaithful I will pursue her he's bringing a cause that Israel is deserving of judgment but later on he lets he lets us know and even before this passage he let us know that in spite of deserving God pours out his mercy and his grace to us we need that pouring out and we can get that pouring out in the Lord Jesus Christ himself so as we see this warning as we see this picture let our hearts cling to God's grace and his mercy in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ he said this way father I am deserving of your judgment and undeserving of your grace. I thank you for that grace that's offered in the Lord Jesus Christ and I pray that I might cling to him and the forgiveness that comes in him and only him. As, as a result of doing that, my life is given to you, belongs to you, and by your power and your strength, I will serve you and you only. Give me the strength to do that. In Jesus.